I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. A very big warm welcome for Colm Tobin and Ruth Piddell. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Claire. Well, um, good evening. And it's such an honour to be asked to do this. Um, Colm, as you know, is a wonderful novelist, essayist. You may also know that he's a dramatist and he's a poet. But above all, what we're here to do is he's a wonderful reader. And I just wanted to read a little bit from his own book, Brooklyn, because he's a reader who's a writer, he's a writer who's a reader, and it seems to be a package all at once. I'm sure you've all read it, but this is a passage when the girl hears that her sister is dead, and she's told this by a priest in Brooklyn. She now wondered if there was any way she could go out into the street find a way to stop this from having happened or stop him from having told her. In the silence, she almost asked Father Flood to go and not come into the store again like this, but she realised instantly how foolish that was. He was here. She had heard what he said. She could not push back time. Now, Colm, your lovely book on Elizabeth Bishop... Um, there's a sort of so many different passages and moods of identification of you as a writer with her as a writer. And I was interested in that passage from your book because it's about um, not wishing that that had not happened, and yet it has happened, is one of the things that seems to me characteristic of some of where Elizabeth Bishop's poems come from. I suppose that they come out of silence and they come out also of a certain landscape and the removal, I mean, they're not being in the landscape. So that if, when you go to Nova Scotia, I mean, it's, it's close to, in a way, any coastal area in Europe that doesn't have a large population. And people are very careful what they say, very watchful. Um, and there's a huge hinterland, which, which is also uh, very poor. And the winter is very long. People have a long time to think about things in the winter. Night falls early. And uh, so if people bear grudges, they're long grudges. <laughs> and love is stubborn, serious love. And uh, solitude is serious. And, and what's more serious than anything is silence. So that um, the whole business of what happened to Elizabeth Bishop, which she was very uneasy about discussing ever. 
And um, you used to talk about my model on happy childhood. And, uh, you know, that when um, there was a big difference between her parents and their social class. Um, her father's family, they built um, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. They built the library in Boston. These are big neoclassical buildings. They built some of the Harvard buildings in Boston. So um, they were very, very rich. And their son married this girl um, from a place called Great Village in Nova Scotia. I mean, it's the smallest place you've ever been. Great Village, it's called, because it's not great. And um, she was a school teacher, And she married him. And um, they had um, this one daughter. And six months later, he died. And um, five years later, after a, a lot of breakdowns, the mother was incarcerated in, in Halifax in Nova Scotia and Elizabeth Bishop never saw her again although the mother lived on uh, for another 17 or 18 years and Bishop would have passed the hospital where she knew her mother was she was an only child um, and she was brought up for 7 or 8 years by the family in Nova Scotia who looked after her extremely well and she was very close to and, you know, but when the bishops arrived from Boston they found this girl in bare feet you know, wandering around with hens outside and they realised that she would have to be taken away to be educated. So she was taken to Boston, where I think the asthma started and, and, and a lot of the sort of nervous diseases which she suffered from began. And she went, I mean, she just, every part of her skin, everything that ha- could happen to a little girl happened to her. And eventually she had to be given to an aunt in Worcester in Massachusetts. And she was brought up by her, going back to Nova Scotia at intervals. Eventually went to Vassar. And uh, she had a whale of a time in Vassar, and she's in. I mean, she's, she's certainly Mary McCarthy did model one of the characters in the group on her. Lakey. And um, yeah, sorry, which of them? Lakey. 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 That's right. And um, Elizabeth Bishop said about Mary McCarthy that you know, if only she said less, she might have more of a, an effect. Um, and uh, then she met Marianne Moore, and um, you know, the, the the business began of moving south. I mean, she spent time in New York and then moved further south to Florida, to Key West. And then, um, in her early 40s, um, she went to Brazil. She was very good at being helpless. People always helped her. She was all, people always helped her getting prizes, literary prizes. Everyone who knew her helped her. And so um, she um, um, arrived in Brazil, and of course she was mutually helpless there, because she, um, she was allergic to many things, but she was allergic to a nut that she ate. And so she was hospitalised, and she only knew one person, and the one person became her lover for all those years, and eventually committed suicide um, in New York, and um, in you know taking an overdose of pills and getting into the bed beside Bishop, and she she went unconscious and didn't recover. And her friends blamed Bishop for the suicide, and the Bishop ended up going back to Brazil, which didn't work, going to various other places in the meantime, Seattle, San Francisco, but ended in Harvard, and. Um, then she retired and she continued in Boston and she died. Um, and um, what's interesting about I me, mean, it's just where we were talking about this poem earlier, there's a famous poem of hers, it's a villanelle. It's one of the poems that she wrote most quickly. Often poems took 20 or even more years from the occasion of the poem to the completion of the poem. And you can trace that in, in, um, in, in her letters and, and also in drafts of poems. But this poem comes very, very quickly and it's called One Art. And it's the one, it's a villanelle which, you know, do not go gentle into that good night, meaning there are a series of repetitions and stanza forms. But people thought it was her frankest poem because it dealt with losing. And she was famous on all the things she'd lost by the time she wrote this poem. And um, there's a loved one mentioned in the poem who's her last girlfriend, who's Alice Messfell. And of course, Bishop being really good at being helpless. She was, when she arrived in Harvard, of course, she needed housing. 
And, of course, she was most helpless on that matter. How would she get housing? And so the head of housing in Harvard was Alice Methville. And not only did Alice get her housing, but they fell in love, and they were together until Bishop's death. And um, Alice inherited the estate um, of Bishop. And um, so she's obviously having trouble at this point with Alice. And um, she... Um, but I just wanted to notice in the poem, I mean, while it, she lists and lists and lists things she lost, she doesn't mention her mother. It's her mother's watch, she mentions. She doesn't mention her father. She doesn't mention um, Lota. She doesn't... Uh, th- th- all the things... And what's strange is... I mean, it, it is a repetition of the art of losing isn't hard to master. And then she says, things I've lost. But there's a letter to Robert Lowell where she says, you know, I lost my mother, my father, Lota, and others too. Where she actually almost says the line of a poem. And it's almost in an iambic beat that it could have worked in the poem. But just, but just listen to the poem for what's not mentioned in the poem. And people thought it was her most confessional poem. And people like Helen Bender and Octavia Paz, who knew her, were really, and Frank Biddart as well, were really surprised at this poem, that she would write something as frank and, and, and confessional and personal. But actually, she didn't. Um, it isn't, yes. it hasn't and been. actually, it is all in the impersonal. Yeah. You say, and she, she's, also, impersonal. she's also using what is effectively a playful form, or at least a form that allows in a sort of masking of feeling. Mm. Uh, as well the art of losing isn't hard to master so many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster lose something every day except the fluster of lost door keys the hour badly spent the art of losing isn't hard to master then practice losing farther losing faster faces and names and where it was you meant to travel none of these will bring disaster I lost my mother's watch and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you. The joking voice, a gesture I love. I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master. Though it may look like, write it, like disaster. So that was the nearest she came in a way. I mean, there are other. There's a poem called Cestina, where she does mention that there is a sense of her mother's absence and her grandma's tears in the house. But again, it's in the form of a Cestina, and you're watching the technical work as much as you're sort of, which sort of masks the feeling or or has, is a way of evading easy feeling. Can we talk a bit about your technical work in this? Because what he does is he braids through the the um, the, auto, the biography which you just heard. And the pain of it, the pain, the consistent pain that comes through with all sorts of very, very careful um, sort of cadenced comments on her technique and what sort of a poet she was and how it developed. How, well, did you, how do you come to do that? Well, I just need to say that, you know, I, I mean, I'm just looking around here. I presume all of you are academics, so you all know, you, just look, you all look like academics. <laughs> and uh, I, mean, I mean, that's a good thing. I, I mean, I like academics. And, um, <laughs> But all of you then have written books for academic presses, so you know what happens, which is you submit the book to the academic press, and two people get to read it and write long commentary on it, and you don't know who they are. And you guess, and you show it to people. Are you sure that isn't Susan? Well, I shouldn't say Susan. I don't think it is Susan Stewart, actually. But, um, I mean, I went through all of my colleagues in Princeton, one by one, as to which of them had written the unpleasant one. And then I never thought about the pleasant. I just thought that was somebody very nice. And I thought of who that might be, but not much. It was the other one. <laughs> and um, it was clear from one remark that it was someone in Princeton. 
and to this day, I'm in, in pursuit of this person. But, um, but, I mean, both of them said the same sort of thing, which was that this series of books, um, I think this is the fourth in a series of books, which, which are about writers on writers, they really do need a personal element, that if you're just writing about Bishop and not writing about yourself, you um, really, really are going to lose, the, you know, you're going to lose the, you're going to miss the point of the book. But the problem was that I'd read one of the other books and I, had, I thought the author had gone on too much about himself and that I didn't want to know that much about him. And I wondered if people felt like that about me. I thought they probably did. And therefore, I should not mention myself very much. But then the two people said I should do it more. So what I did was I wrote a ch- chapter at the end, which is about how something close to a bishop poem actually happened to, happened to me. And then there's a, there's a chapter four where I go on about myself a good bit. And then I cut out all the other references to myself throughout. I just thought, that's enough about me now. Um, and um, the, I mean, the point, the, the, the interesting thing about Bishop is how, what she didn't write. And then with what she did write, how much is withheld, how much is about finding a rhythm of withholding, where the emotion is between lines, it's there, it's not there, it's coming back, even though she's describing a thing. And her interest in things was enormous, almost as though the world might change or shift. And she should not only notice it, but but she should actually register it. For example, she loved Darwin's work because of that idea of how much was noted, and how much was noted accurately. She was interested in George Herbert also for the the way in which he actually managed to construct a poem, a poem as a construct. And she was interested in that idea almost as a poem, um, as a a thing, as, as almost an art object. We ought perhaps to mention this book, which you probably all have as well, this wonderful book, Exchanging Hats, which is about Elizabeth Bishop's um, paintings. And there's a very interesting introduction, which I thought I'd bring into here. Um, There seemed to be one thing in common. She's quite sharp when she wants to be, isn't she? Oh, yeah. Um, One thing common to all these primitive writers, writing, as I suppose it might be called, in contrast to primitive painting. She regards herself as a primitive painter. You can see up here. Um, it's slipshoddiness and haste, where primitive painters will spend months or years, if necessary, putting in every blade of grass and building up brick walls in low relief. The primitive writer seems in a hurry to get it over with. Another thing is the almost complete lack of detail. The primitive painter loves detail and lingers over it and emphasizes it at the expense of the picture as a whole. But if the primitive writers put them in, the details are often impossibly or wildly inappropriate, sometimes revealing a great deal about the writer without furthering the matter in hand at all. Yeah, I mean, she was, she was terribly interested um, in what exactly things were like. And, um, I mean, I just, there's a thing where she, um, she, 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 she loved correcting herself so that she, if she gets a detail even slightly wrong. <coughs> so she's looking at a map and she's using the word shadows and then wonders... Well, are, are, are they shallows? And in The Weed, she writes, um, she wrote in a dream, I lay upon a grave or, or bed. But, so it's a grave or bed, but immediately again she has to qualify that by writing, or at least some cold and close-built bower. And in her poem, The Fish, she wrote the words, his lower lip. She has to immediately say, well, if you could call it a lip. And then when she does Arrival in Santos, she describes the mountains as self-pitying. Then she has to stop and say, well, who knows? And she's a lovely um, moment when she comes to saying that something was homemade. It's in Crusoe in England. And then she thinks, homemade? But 
aren't we all homemade? And of course, that's the most tremendous idea that we're all homemade, um, isn't it? And um, um, I mean, she also has a lovely thing about islands, saying, well, Crusoe was off his island, and maybe I was on another island, just a bigger one. And who decides? In other words, who decides what's an island? Who decides what's, who decides what's a continent? And um, in the armadillo, when she mentions the stars, she has to meet you correct herself, the planets, that is. And um, so in her poem about the hen that was run over on West 4th Street, she was forced to make clear that the hen, while once white, was or is red and white now, of course, because it was run over. So it's not white. It was white. Now it's not white. And, um, of course, the big moment is in, in, her, in, her, in, in her late poem, poem, she uses the word vision, that her uncle, her granduncle, and herself had seen this landscape. He had painted it. She'd merely seen it. And then she thinks our visions had coincided. And that's against her entire state, the word visions. It's a big word, and it's, it's an unnecessarily um, abstract word. It's a heightened word. And she wants to bring things down to themselves. So she goes visions, and then she says, visions is too serious a word. And then she, gets, she wants to get a better word, our looks. Two looks. And then the great moment at the end of March, the poem, the end of March, where she says she wants to retire and do nothing. Then, of course, you can immediately think, no, no, she said, doing nothing is a sort of cliche. And then she just goes in the next line, or nothing much. <laughs> and the difference, of course, between nothing and nothing much is really great. And, and in then that other late poem, the unpublished poem, Santarem, the best poem, in my view, about Brazil, twice she has to correct herself when she calls um, the place the church and she has to say the cathedral rather and she even did it in letters where it's a letter to James Merrill or a letter to Robert Lowell and um, she says James, James Merrill and I gave a joint reading and then she has to think for a second well that couldn't be true you can't do a joint reading no a sequential reading <laughs> um, at the YMHA and, and there are letters to Lowell about this idea that she said, you know, that you, you have no idea what might depend on being accurate. Um, that that, that it, isn't, it isn't nothing. For her, it was, it was certainly a moral question. But it was even more than that. It was something to do with survival, that if you suddenly started getting things wrong or being lazy with words, that all things would slip away. And so the poem had become a way of clarifying the world and almost rectifying it. And um, there's a, there's, I mean, there is, a, to some extent, a sort of Baptist vision in this, that she will not push, say, prayer further than prayer might go. And she makes, puts the word poetry in there. And, uh, I mean, when it took her all those years to write the poem, The Moose. I mean, she saw a moose. She was going back to Boston on the bus, and a moose came out onto the road. And this was, what, 1946? Yeah, I was. And um, so she wrote, writes a letter quite soon to somebody describing the whole business of the moose. And what it was like. And um, then she writes to someone, she's writing a poem about the moose. Ten years later. And, yeah, and, yeah, and then there's no poem. Then she writes to Anne Grace saying, I'm writing a poem dedicated to you called The Moose. You are not the moose. <laughs> and um, then, what, what year? You, 1972. Good. Great, great, <laughs> hey! And, um, I've read it all from your book. Yeah, I know, but uh, even so. Um, and uh, she, but she, she reads it um, at, a, at one of those inauguration ceremonies at an American university, and she hears later that one of the students asked another, what was the poem like? And he said, ah, oh, it was okay as far as poems go. <laughs> and Bishop thought that was a wonderfully complimentary thing to say. She was very pleased with the idea that it was good as far as poems go. I should say that she really was... Um, there are a lot of people, if you throw a stone in a line going up from... 
I don't know, from somewhere in New Jersey right up to Boston. You usually hit somebody who was one of her students in Harvard. And there seem to have been many. And, um, but the best account of it is by one of them called Dana Joya. He wrote an account of she really didn't think people should write poetry. And she thinks they should be stopped writing it. And that I was really, you know, and so how she managed this with the students was she, every week she said to them, I mean, these were serious graduate students who'd come to Harvard and paid all this money to study with Elizabeth Bishop. And she said, I'd like you to learn a poem off by heart each week for the semester. So each, each week, if you could tell me what you're going to learn for next week, and then I'll examine you all when you all come in. And they wanted to know all about, you know, Sejura and Anapest. And they wanted to know, like, should they be writing, you know. And she said, no, 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 don't write at all. Just learn poems off by heart. It'll be great to help you in later life. <laughs> so every week, she'd have it all written out, who, who had to learn what poem. And she would examine them. And, of Let's course, Harvard, Harvard eventually found that in her contract, um, it said that at 65 she had to retire, which really wasn't true for anybody else. And so at 65 they made her retire and they, and they gave the job to Seamus Heaney, who did read students' poetry. You know, and, and, and Jory Graham has it now, and she does that too. She, she's, she's good too. Can we ask about Robert Lowell? Because one of the, the most important sort of relationships is both emotional and, and um, professional. Yeah. And they sort of feed and react to each other's work like a pair of sort of blackbirds jumping back. And, but there's one sort of major thing, which is she wrote one sort of prose piece um, about her mother, it's called The Scream, it was about her mother's well, being it, taken it, it, away. It's called In the Village. In the Village, yeah, in the village yeah. that's right. Uh, about she, her mother being taken yeah. away. And then Robert, she sent it to Robert Lowell, and he wrote a poem out of it. That is such a dangerous thing. If somebody did that to me... Yeah, I mean, prose writers really were going to... We, we have started a union on the matter. Stop poets <laughs> making poems out of our pieces. Um, the, um, obviously, when she met Lowell, he was a star, and he was immensely handsome... And, and, and they really, um, he wrote to her later to say, if only I had made the choice and the choice had been you. She was lesbian, but that didn't seem to bother him. And um, they, um, you, you know, um, for all of their lives, they remained best friends. It was sort of alibi. She, she would say to everyone, oh, he's my best friend. And, and she would say, you know, vice versa. But they never really saw one another much, which I suppose kept the friendship I suppose, nourished in certain ways. They wrote letters to each other. Her letters are, are better than his. Because he, was, he really had a great social whirl going. But she was very isolated in Brazil. But anyway, um, she wrote the, um, with, with, a, with a good dose of cortisone and a good dose of gin and tonic. She wrote a story overnight called In the Village, which is the only time she tells the story of what happened to her mother when her mother went insane. And she was there in the village, age five. And it's, it's a beautiful piece of writing. Robert Lowell decided to make a poem out of it called The Scream. And, and um, in a way, it, it's a sort of... Sh- where her poem is a sort of... Her, her prose piece is a sort of calm beauty. His poem is a sort of shriek. And, um, but they continued to have these relationships, for example, where um, Lowell had a prose piece um, in the middle of life studies, an autobiographical prose piece, in the middle of his book of poems. Bishop did that with her next book. Lowell wrote... Um, Bishop wrote a poem called The Armadillo, using a certain um, stanza form. Lowell wrote Skunk Hour in the same stanza form. And, and, and they were in constant correspondence about poetry and about what they were reading. And um, they, the, But the big moment really is where after the death of Lothar, or perhaps before, but when things were very, very bad between them, Bishop wrote a number of letters to Lowell. And uh, this is the first time I came across Bishop as, as a sort of suffering soul. In other words, I had only read the poetry. I didn't know anything about the life. Oddly enough, in the poetry, you could guess there was something, but you didn't know what. 
that had caused the poems to have their extraordinary amount of um, austerity, um, care, um, a sort of whimsy sometimes, a sort of shrugging tone. But behind it all was a sort of a strange dark... Uh, there could be dark references or moments where you realise this poem... This poem's occasion is a much darker thing than the poem's own tone, and yet the po- tone seems to contain some of the occasion in you ways say which are the mysterious. The pain is in the tone. The pain is in the tone. Yeah. But um, so anyway, she wrote these letters and said that things have never been as bad. That she's like going into a dark cave, and she says your letter helped, like being mailed a lantern or a spiked stick, which is I think a really beautiful image. And um, but she said that things have never been as bad, and and, and he just simply got those letters. And he made two sonnets out of them, without a permission. And he published them. And it, it, they're, they're, in, they're in notebook first, um, four poems to Elizabeth Bishop. But two of them are clearly her voice. And um, he took those. But the big things that happened later were, he did two things that really seriously displeased her, because they went against everything she believed in. He put, when, look, she put up with them publishing life studies, and we'll come to this in a minute, the, the idea of writing confessional poetry, putting it all down into poetry, your, your mental incarceration, your relationship with your parents, your divorce, the whole business to be put into a book called Life Studies. She put up with that, but she couldn't put up um, with um, um, uh, imitations, his, um, his book of, of what he called imitations or versions, which were sort of translations. It was dedicated to her. She did something very clever. You should always do this. When he sent her the book, she sent him a telegram immediately saying, thank you for the book, meaning she didn't have to read, you know, she wasn't responding to having read it. But of course, then she began to read it and she was appalled at the fact, it wasn't that he had, um, that, that he'd made deliberate changes in order to make, the, in order to try and find a tone in English for the tone in French. It, it, it wasn't that he'd made absolute mistakes in what he thought French words meant. And for her... This was absolutely horrific that he hadn't checked a dictionary, that he hadn't done the work, that he hadn't done the slow work. So she wrote him a really detailed letter correcting his French. As I say in the book, there's nothing more fun than correcting someone's French. And she obviously really enjoyed herself doing it. And the further she went, the more pleasure she seemed to take in this. I mean, it was a devastating letter. And at one stage she said, you know, you know, you're making such a mistake here, you really have to ask T.S. Eliot what he thinks. Which I think must have been the most fun thing she's ever said. And... Um, what he did later on, I, I think, was a, it was an even bigger feud between them. I mean, they always made up, um, but um, this one was where, when he left his wife, Elizabeth Hardwick, who he left in New York, and he was in London with the writer Caroline Blackwood, and he was getting divorced from Elizabeth Hardwick. And uh, um, her letters to him were heartrending because she, this came out of the blue. This, this, they'd been together for many years. They had a child. And anyway, she, she wrote him these heartrending letters. And Lowell, of course, what do, you, what do you do with letters? Make sonnets from them. So he just made sonnets out of her letters. Just letter, sonnet, letter, sonnet. And uh, it was clear they were, they, were, they were from letters. Bishop wrote him a long letter. And she just said, don't let anyone tell you this is not art. What you've done is extraordinary. You've actually made something from, from, from this random form, the letter. You've made something artful and beautiful and strange. But don't let, don't let, but don't let anyone tell you you haven't done this, because you have but I want to tell you it isn't worth it. And that idea that art not being worth it, I don't think anyone else had said that quite as starkly before. And, um, because of the pain. It was, book, it was the book was called For Lizzie and Harriet. And what on earth it was like when it came out into the air. Yeah. Um, so so th- that's the relationship between her, between her and Lowell. Um, and the, the other one I want to talk about 
she had an interesting relationship with the English poet Tom Gunn. Um, and when he met her first, he was living in San Francisco. She came to teach there and live there. And um, so she got someone to invite him around. Elizabeth Bishop wants to meet you. So he came round. Of course, one of the things we have to remember about her is that she was usually drunk. And, um, I mean, she really did suffer as an alcoholic. And um, she was great at present to phone you up at three in the morning. I don't know if you all know anyone like that. But the three in the morning phone call, you realize, is never going to end. <laughs> and um, so she was very good at that. And uh, felt really ashamed in the morning. And um, anyway, she um, um, was so drunk that she just I- issued some monosyllables and gone went home. But she came around, he came around later and they began to talk poetry. And, of course, they both loved this, um, the late 16th century, early 17th century. They loved George Herbert, John Donne, Thomas Wyatt, Full Greville. And so they talked poetry. And Gunn is wonderful on this. That, you know, the re- a real friendship can come really only from talking about things that don't matter personally to you. I suppose he was living in America and tired of Americans telling the whole story of their lives on, on, you know, on, on, on meeting. And Bishop and him didn't do this. But they had a great deal in common. Gunn's mother committed suicide when he was uh, about 13 and he found her body. And he didn't write about this, as we know, for 43 years until a poem called The Gas Poker. So he went through most of his career as a poet without referring to this. Um, And um, I understand from people who know him in San Francisco that it was something he didn't talk about. It just wasn't part of his deal. And um, Bishop, similarly as I said, didn't, didn't, didn't write about what happened to her. So wh- when they met, they were both, I mean, obviously both homosexual. Both had found, and I'd, I'd have to be a good Freudian or Jungian or, I don't know, Lacan, or someone in the audience will be able to help me. Why did they both go and live in beautiful, exotic cities on the ocean with hills behind them, as in Rio Janeiro and uh, San Francisco? Uh, why did they do this? But they both did. And they both... Um, there, there are funny connections between the poems they wrote. They, they loved the impersonal tone. They, they, they loved the mastery of form. And they loved that display of form, in Gunn's case of what I would call advanced masculinity, you know, guys on motorbikes and stuff. And, um, um, but they, um, in, the, in an age when confessional poetry became really fashionable, if you weren't writing it, you were nobody. You know, um, in other words, the age of Robert Lowell's life studies of... Um, what's he called, W.D. Snodgrass's Heart's Needle, of Sylvia Plath's late poems, and of, obviously, Anne Sexton's poems. And both Gunn and Bishop really hated this work. I mean, Bishop put up with Gunn, or Bishop put up with Lowell because she knew him. But she really said, uh, people are out-sexing that Anne Sexton. And um, she, um, Tom Gunn said, um, you know, of all the people I want, I don't want to be Sylvia Plath. And um, for both of them, confessional poetry seemed almost frightening. But, but it wasn't merely that, that they were scared at the idea that they too would have to conform to this and start writing about things that were so deeply painful for them, so buried in their psyches, so, un, so undealt with and unformed for them. That, but it wasn't just about that. It was also in a, a serious aesthetic matter that they believed that the job of a poet was not to tell um, sort of, um, stories that were so personal that no reader could get anything from them other than the information offered about the poet's personal life, that there was nothing larger than that being, 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 de- being declared or being dramatised. And so they both went on. Um, Bishop has no problem. The only time she does um, her mother's thing is in that story in the village. There's no poem about it. She did their drafts of poems, beginnings of poems, 
but, there, but there's no completed poem about her mother or her father or what happened to her in childhood. And in Gun, it's, it's, it's the gas poker. It's another poem in that volume, Boss Cupid. But interestingly, at the very end, um, Tom Gunn wrote the best elegies I think we have um, from the last... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It was 50 years, but he wrote The Man with Night Sweats. Whereas his friends began to die of AIDS, he wrote these, these extraordinarily powerful, almost impersonal poems moving into the personal as though by default, as though by accident. There's that one at the, when he, he talks about it at the end, the last line is, and yes, how like my mind. Yes. Um, how like my mind to make itself secure. Yes. yes it's a he, poem called The Reassurance. Yeah. And of Talk course, someone that. is coming back as a ghost who's died. And he's saying, I'm all right now. And yeah. God said, how like you, you know, how like you to reassure and how like my mind to make itself secure. But, but, but they were, um, Gunn was taking work. There, there are a funny group of poems by Thomas Wyatt that didn't, didn't see the light of day until the early 19, you're good on dates, 1960s. And there are the poems written around, someone may know this date, the exact date, but anyway, um, they were poems that Wyatt had written around the time of the execution of his friends, including Anne Boleyn. And there are moments, I mean, Gunn has an essay about these poems where the mask falls at certain moments. The impersonal mask falls. And um, there's a moment where Wyatt says, I, 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 um, I cannot write the page, it is so wet, from, from his tears. And it's mentioned, he doesn't mean tears in general, he means his own tears now. But the poem is built on generality. Do you, do you, do you have it there? Or no, there? I don't. All oh, oh, right. Oh, and um, the, um, at the end of her life... Um, which maybe I'll read. Can I, can I, maybe I'll read this as well. Um, I think the more we read, the better. <laughs> um, the, um, what happened was that Bishop and Alice Mesfell were, began going out to the coast of Maine to a place called North Haven. And um, they had wonderful summers there in, in a cabin just on the very edge of the ocean. And one summer, Lowell wrote to say that him and Mary McCarthy were very close by and they'd like to come over. Now, of all the people Bishop didn't want looking at her new life with Alice was Mary McCarthy. We get another novel out of it. And um, she also thought they'd make a lot of noise. And she wrote to Lowell and said, no, no, why don't you come next year if I'm still here? And she wrote to Mary McCarthy even more dismissively. And then, um, um, and then Lowell died. So she never saw him again. He died suddenly. And so she had notebooks um, from her time um, in North Haven, and she began to write an elegy for him. And she uses various references to um, Alice in Wonderland, 
love labours lost. I mean, there, there are quite a lot. But there's just one moment I want to draw your attention to, which, which will come when, when she says, nature... There's an extraordinary moment in this poem where she says, nature repeats herself. And then, she, of course, she has to correct herself because nature repeats herself. Is that absolutely true? And then she suddenly says, or almost does. Mm-hmm. And, of course, almost does means that, well, we die. You know, we, we die. And then... Sorry, not looking at you personally, but, I mean, we die... And other people like us come, you know, but they're not exactly the same. So nature repeats herself, or almost does, which she also does in... There's there's an earlier moment where in the poem she says, um, the the goldfinches are back. Of course, Bishop has to watch everything she says. You know, she's not able to do a line like, the goldfinches are back. She suddenly says, are others like them? I mean, they're not back. They're dead. And new one. Uh, anyway, but just after nature repeats herself, it almost does. Remember, the next line is in, ita- is in italics. And it has to rhyme with eyes, the last line. Now, I went through, you know, I went through the Shakespeare songs. I went through George Herbert. Every word we have in English almost rhymes with eyes, revive, you know. Like, just think about it, you know, ice. Ice nearly rhymes with eyes. But, um, you know, buys, cries, dies. I mean, just, it could go on. There's no word in English almost that doesn't rhyme with um, eyes. And so she can do anything here. And since she's, she's, she's given herself permission almost to say something now about her plight or, or the plight of people or how people don't survive and death. So she, just watch when she says, nature repeats it almost does. And she just simply says, repeat, 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 semicolon, revise, revise, revise. And they're in italics. And they're so mysterious, so odd. When you think she's about to say something serious now that she means... She moves back into, the, into something that's almost playful, but verging also on the tearful, moving between playful and tearful. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Colon, semicolon. Revise, revise, revise. Anyway, here's the poem that she wrote, um, and, and this sort of matches the elegy poems that, that Tom Gunn wrote, and it's, it's her elegy for Robert Lowell. It's called North Haven. I can make out the rigging of a schooner a mile off, I can count the new cones on the spruce. It is so still, the pale bay wears a milky skin, the sky no clouds except for one long carded horse's tail. The islands haven't shifted since last summer, even if I like to pretend they have, drifting in a dreamy sort of way, a little north, a little south or sidewise, and that they're free within the blue frontiers of bay. This month our favourite one is full of flowers, buttercups, Red clover, purple vetch, hawkweed still burning, daisies pied, eye bright, the fragrant bed straws, incandescent stars, and more return to paint the meadows with delight. The goldfinches are back, or others like them. And the white throated sparrow's five note song, pleading and pleading, brings tears to the eyes. Nature repeats herself, or almost does. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Revise, revise, revise. Years ago, you told me it was here in 1932. You first discovered girls and learned to sail and learned to kiss. You had such fun, you said, that classic summer. Fun. It always seemed to leave you at a loss. You left North Haven, anchored in its rock, afloat in mystic blue. Now you've left for good. You can't derange or rearrange your poems again. But the sparrows can their song. The words won't change again. 
sad friend you cannot change. Oh, that's so wonderful, poem, isn't it? Yeah. Can I read one? Yeah, go Because <clears throat> this, is a, this is a poem I, I wanted to talk about oh, patterning. Is, oh, is that sonnet? Yeah. Can I just say something about it? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I think that it's... Um, Robert Lowell, at the end of his life, just could not stop writing sonnets. Day and night, more sonnets came. I mean, um, a book called Notebook filled with sonnets, and then Revise, which is mentioning arrange and rearrange your poems again, derange your poems, because he then produced three books made up of more sonnets or revised sonnets. So he he was sonneted out. I mean, he was more sonnets. And she, of course, wrote to him at one point saying, sonnets, yes, I have a little sonnet. I have one sonnet. I think I might finish it some, some time. It was sort of a way of laughing at him. And this sonnet, of course, is a skinny sonnet. It's, got two, it's only got two beats per line. Um, but I was thinking also, because there's so much about patterning, it seems as if, you know, reading your book and listening to you, I mean, it seems as if her life, the life where she felt most alive was in the precinct of the poem and in the patterning of the poem. I mean, I mean it's lovely that she had that time with Alice at the end of her life, but so much of it was so agonised, the pain was everywhere, but it was within, and it's patterning that she really lived. And so I was thinking, there's this wonderful image about the empty mirror, which is, in a way, the impersonal. Where is Tom Gunn? Where is Elizabeth Bishop? Yeah, yeah. It's an empty mirror. But where the rainbow is, it's in the bevel of the narrow bevel. That's where the colour and the patterning and the spectrum come. And you suddenly made me realise that's... okay. so I'm going to read this. Then you talk about sonnet. Sonnet. Caught the bubble in the spirit level, a creature divided. And the compass needle wobbling and wavering, undecided. Freed the broken thermometer's mercury running away. And the rainbow bird from the narrow bevel of the empty mirror flying wherever it feels like gay. And and that's such a joyful yeah. poem. And it's funny that art. she's using the word gay at the end oh, because yeah. she really wasn't, I mean, she wasn't, I, I don't know much how she would have voted in the same sex referendum in Ireland, but um, she, she did say that closets, 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 there cannot be enough closets, and she was never ready to be the sort of lesbian lady. James Merrill said that she did a lifelong imitation of an ordinary woman, uh, which I think is a terrific idea. Um, the, the, the other great friendship, I mean, besides the one with Lowell, the, the sort of nourishing and odd and difficult friendships was with Marianne Moore, whom she met first in the year of her mother's death in 1934. Um, Bishop was 22, just down from Vassar, and they met uh, just outside the main entrance in your public library. And Moore took her under her wing and became a great example for her of a sort of, um, like, uh, of a of a poet who, who didn't have a husband, who didn't intend to have a husband, and who was devoted to her art and who changed her poems all the time, and who you know, uh, was hugely ambitious and also determined to maintain a sort of personal voice, a personal vision, and accuracy was so important for Moore as well. But in the early 1940s, Bishop sends Moore a poem, as she was sending her all her poetry, and it's a poem called Roosters, and it's become a sort of famous Bishop poem, it's set in Key West, and it describes roosters in Key West. And eventually they become sort of military figures, and eventually she brings in religion. But the form of the poem is, is extraordinary. They have these very, very hard masculine rhymes going throughout the poem. That sort of, um, and the sort of um, uh, form of the poem begins to mimic the roosters as they actually move around and as they wake up in the morning. But Bishop or, or, um, Moore's mother was a great old, old, old wretch, and she... Um, very bossy, and she 
really thought that poetry should not contain any words. And poetry should be very nice. But also, Moore's mother was against strict stanza form in poetry. I mean, she had many, many attitudes, Moore's mother. <laughs> and um, so, um, I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful moment where, uh, it must be Robert Lowell, where some friend of Marianne Moore's was never allowed to visit again. And Bishop said, well, why is he never allowed to visit again? He said, he contradicted mother. <laughs> and anyway, mother and Marianne sat up through the night and they rewrote the poem Roosters for her. And they didn't like... Um, for example, um, she actually mentions the droppings of the... Of the she mentioned birds' droppings in a poem. And they also mentioned the, the sort of... Um, um, the, the outhouse, you know, the, the sort of outdoor toilet. And loads of things got mentioned that they... I mean, there weren't no rude words in the poem, but they felt any reference to sort of um, excrement. There was no excrement. I mean, Bodily function. Bodily function. Anyway. So they sent it back to Bishop. But the, the one thing that they didn't like the title, they just thought roosters was too crude and it'd be better to have a better word than roosters. It wouldn't be as sort of obviously masculine or something. So they said, cocks. <laughs> and they honestly did this in all innocence. They had no idea what this would look like in the future. And um, if you go into the... There, there's a library in Philadelphia where all the Moore Bishop correspondence is. Is it called the Roarsback? Anyway, I was there recently. And it's really wonderful looking at this correspondence, at them writing out. They, they, were, they were so sure that they were doing her an enormous favour. And that's, that was the end of her sending. I mean, she didn't send... I mean, she remained very close to Moore and she, and she wrote to her a great deal. Wasn't there a story about the nude that Moore asked her... Elizabeth, do you like the nude... And she said, well, yes, on the whole, she did. And Moore said, well, so do I, in moderation. Yes, in moderation. And then she gave her the book called The Nude by, by that art critic. Kenneth Clark. Yes, Kenneth Clark. Kenneth Clark, which she liked. Yes. Um, but, uh, I mean, what's happened to her reputation um, is really extraordinary compared to Berryman or Lowell, who, who would have been towering figures at the time who everybody would have been reading and talking about. The books would be, all the books would be in print, would be regularly published and everywhere. Bishop, ha- Bishop was considered whimsical, a sort of lady poet living in Brazil, writing about nature. And, um, I mean, they, they really did patronise her, and um, she, she just waited with each poem. As, as Lowell says in one of those four poems I mentioned, that hanging poems, she would hang poems like words in air, and um, that she was um, an unerring muse who makes the casual perfect. And the unerring muse who said about making the casual perfect just waited and watched, was in no hurry to publish, didn't publish a lot of her poems that have now emerged in a book of her, of her sort of leftover poems, which other poets would have published. But actually she's emerged now as the sort of central figure. And she's changed the... I suppose she's changed the march of American poetry in that she has, she has entered into it a spirit of pure descent from all shared feeling. She, her isolation, her solitude, her insistence on this hurt voice in abeyance has actually changed the entire... I mean, I mean there was a, up to then you could say there was a battle going on, which was... There was a sort of eagerness within American poetry to join, to be part, to write a public poem. Wait, wait, though, there's Elizabeth... I mean, there's Dickinson, because we've got, you've got the image of the woman alone, solitary, retreated, Absolutely. doing this amazing totally individual thing that comes from her. Um, so there's, you could say the bishop is, is putting that, that yeah. arc in place. Yeah, that, that arc moves and become, becomes the central arc. Yeah. And, that, and if you are now putting together, or anyone was thinking about American poetry, that arc 
and, and other people can join in on the way if they want. Well, there are two. I mean, it's, it's a totally gendered thing. So Whitman, Whitman, whoosh, you know. Um. Yeah. So it's... Um, so that's all I want to say, really. Yeah. I mean, if, if anyone has any, 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 okay. any comments to make, um, uh, do you have anything more to say? No, well, I wanted to, I wanted to end by a little bit about your, you and patterning. So I wanted, I wanted to know... I what didn't know I, you were going to do any of this, so... Uh, no, I know. Well, he I said, he said throw, throw, throw anything at me. I'm looking I at the end that. of Brooklyn. <laughs> at the end of Brooklyn, this, the film of Brooklyn is coming out in November, which, so we're in for a treat when that happens. But... There are these last five paragraphs in Brooklyn, um, which are, she's decided, this girl, to go back to the man that she's married in America, knowing that she's left her, her, um, you know, this, this, her mother alone. So each of these paragraphs ends with a patterning and a cadence that is so sort of bishopy. So um, sometime in the future, she thought she would look at these photographs and remember what would soon she knew now seem like a strange hazy dream to her okay and then she's looking out and the last rays of the sun come through the window and then she um, lowers her eyes in a sort of reverence this is to to look for the boy that was she knew wanted to marry her but she did not open the door and then um, then she drops the note through the letterbox of the hall door and then um, she's got a look in her eyes that suggested both an inexpressible sorrow and whatever pride she could muster. And then she almost smiled at the thought of what would happen later, then closed her eyes as the last sentence and tried to imagine nothing more. Each of these paragraphs ends with this awe, this dropping cadence, or with a muster, with a feminine rhyme of something that is oh, yeah. looking out. If I'd known that, I would, I would have changed it. You know? Yes, that's exactly words, what she said. You know, but, if you're yeah. not working out of instinct in that sort of way, if, if you actually are planning that, it doesn't work at no. all. No, but you are working out of instinct. Yeah. You can feel that as you read it. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's just a little bit more about where do things come from and how do we pattern them, how do we, how do we mutate them. Yeah. I just want to say, well, I suppose there is one more thing to say, that um, place affected her deeply. Mm. When she goes down to Florida and spends a decade there, the, um, of course, the war is on for some of that time, and images come into the poems filled with violence and strange, cruel, you know, re- references to cruelties. And um, but she describes the landscape as well in, in ways which may seem warm. Until you really study the poem, you realise that whatever is going on here, there's a battle going on within her between a sort of sweetness in her temperament, an interest in whimsy, an interest in colour and the look of things. And some, and some inner heart of things that was much stranger and darker and more cruel and, and more violent. But then when she goes to Brazil, a sort of new... Uh, something opens up in her where she really just wants to celebrate landscape, to celebrate, you know, um, indigenous people, to, to look at trees, to think about history almost in a way that's benign. And, uh, but actually what she starts to do then is to remember Nova Scotia. There's a wonderful letter to her aunt where she says, um, no, sorry, it's to Robert Lowell, the letter, which is thinking about her aunt, saying, you know, Brazil is at its most beautiful just now. With this sort of, you know, the sky, the sun all day, the clouds, and the houses they lived in. I mean, they lived in beautiful places um, because Lowell was very rich. And um, they said, I would give anything to see the fall colours in Nova Scotia. I would give anything now to be in Nova Scotia. And, of course, she did begin to go to Nova Scotia in her mind. She began to write personal poems about her childhood in Nova Scotia. And what she's best at, in a way, is when she's lost somewhere. And I think this might be true for a lot of writers, that losing something, um, losing a house, 
the house you were brought up in being sold to strangers. And suddenly the only person who can ever inhabit that house again is you as you write. And um, that, that idea of loss then making its way into these poems from Nova Scotia, but also the best Brazil poem is a poem written much later when she's remembering something that she saw when she was on the Amazon. And um, whereas there's something, sometimes, sometimes um, Tom Gunn used the phrase about her work, something oddly cosy sometimes about how she will describe something or how she will open a poem. I mean, our poem Florida begins with, I think, one of the worst lines um, in poetry. You know, it says, oh, she calls it, it begins, the state with the prettiest name. I think anyone would have to tell her, no, no, you mustn't write that down. I mean, you must. But actually, when the poem goes down, it gets better. But sometimes she really does that. Um, um, uh, there's a poem called Filling Station. begins, oh, but it is dirty. But Elizabeth, please, like, please help us here. You know, that there are times when a sort of coziness, a whimsy takes over. But n- never for long. It is as though she's almost trying. I mean, on her gravestone, she, two of the words written, she wanted them on. It's from a poem, Awful But Cheerful. And she did want, in a way, to try and register the cheerful, sometimes in poetry, as well as the awful, which is why, for example, she thought Philip Larkin was just too openly grim. She writes to Lowell to say, oh, I'm all for grimness, but you can't just write it down like Philip Larkin. <laughs> I mean, she felt, in other words, that, that you have to gain it by doing something else in the poem first, by seeming to be cheerful, and then letting in the dark, which she felt Larkin didn't do as much. But I suppose Larkin was just vaguely grumbling about living in Hull, Whereas Bishop had much more serious things to be sad about, which he then realised the best thing to do was not to mention them. You're touching the English psyche here. <laughs> Larkin. Okay, let's, let's throw it open. Um, there are the robing, robing mics. Um, I'm not sure everybody has questions. Who would like to start? Thanks. Um, with Filling Station, I've always just wondered, is she kind of mocking what we would think at the beginning in that opening line? Is it a sentimental poem? I don't really know what I think about it. Can um, you help I mean, me? one of the fascinating things is that that filling station is real, and you can still see it in, in, in Great Village in Nova Scotia, and that she was recovering it. But, but there were times when she just w- wasn't ready. To, to, she wasn't ready to find a tone that was going to match the loss and the fact that things just couldn't be recovered. So she would go, a, 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 she would go good distance to avoid that. And that's why some of the time the whimsy gets into poems. So I think Filling Station is one example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, come on. Uh, do you feel that one of the things about Elizabeth Bishop is the relative small number of poems that she did write? You know, and thinking about Larkin, you know, there is a, an advantage in some respects as against uh, Robert Lowell and, and the sonnets. And, and I just wondered, you know, sort of this... Uh, the fact that pe- poets seem to overwrite in certain circumstances, and she didn't, and this is why maybe now she's getting her just desserts. Um, yes, I think that um, there, there, there are times when you see a poem and you think, this could only have come after many years. I'll just give an example of that. Um, she, she has a poem which, again, begins cosily, um, it's called At the Fish Houses, and she's talking about describing the fish houses and then describing the sort of man who her grandfather could have known. And she's, um, she, you know, she's, um, I mean, you just think it could be, um, I mean, he's saying um, the man accepts a lucky strike. That's the line of a poem, the man accepts a lucky strike. And this is Bishop in one of her modes where she just wants to get down to the ordinary business and put it into a line of a poem. She's always got to watch it when she does this because something is coming or may be coming. The old man accepts a lucky strike. Stop. 
He was a friend of my grandfather. Stop. Right, okay. This is, this is her idea of some, what you must do in a poem. Just write something down that's true. We talk of the decline of the population and of codfish and herring, but he waits for a herring boat to come in. Okay. I don't think this is much, really. There are sequins on his vest and on his thumb. He has scraped the scales, the principal beauty, from unnumbered fish with that black old knife, the blade of which is almost worn away. This is very close to prose in the way it moves. In other words, you can't see an obvious, say, beat in it. And it isn't as though... I mean, the principal beauty may be some effort to say something heightened and exalted about a thing, but not much. But by the end of the poem, she has gone... I mean, this is the last... Um, this is the last sentence of the poem, um, which is um, how many lines? It's three, uh, it's eight lines. And she's talking about water. And um, she's, she's suddenly said that as if water were a transmutation of fire that feeds on stones and burns with the, with the dark grey flame. And then she goes, and, and you realise, this must have come from writing things down, leaving things casual, knowing to do that, knowing something is coming, and knowing also that what's coming must also be as tested by truth, experience, the, 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 the irony of the reader. All of those things must be taken into account as you attempt now to do. It's very close to what Joyce was trying to do at the end of The Dead, where you've earned your living by describing things in such grim detail of what was, they were eating, what each one was thinking, what the dance was. That is filled with material things. And then you can get that extraordinary last paragraph where the, in, where the, the, the images are all totalizing images, where the, the, the eye moves way above this house into the vast world and then ends with the living and the dead. So that, this is her last sentence. And she's talking about this idea of water as a transmutation of fire down in the fish houses. If you tasted it, it first taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. Oh, sorry, there's a full stop here now. And then goes, it is like what we imagine. Now, what could the next word possibly be? It's like what we imagine. Now, she's, t- she's down at the fish houses. She's thinking about fire, water as a transmutation of fire. It would burn, your tongue would be briny. She hasn't, uh, and then it goes, it's like what we imagine knowledge to be. Now, that must have come one day out of the blue, going for a walk, and suddenly, knowledge, run back home, write the word knowledge. We imagine knowledge to be, but there's been no mention of knowledge before. This is not a concept poem. It's a poem of a very stark, realistic detail. Anyway, um, um, it's like what what we imagine knowledge to be. Dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free. Drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world. Derived from the rocky breasts forever. Flowing and drawn. And since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown. And um, you just think with that, that that's not a poem written in a week. You, you would know more about this than I do, but it's not a poem written in a week. You know, and that was to get that move, that big move from that early tone. And I mean, what happens in the middle of the poem is she begins to use repetition. And she uses the word down repeatedly. And she uses, uh, so the poem starts to become incantatory towards the middle. <coughs> in preparation for this extraordinary ending where a concept, knowledge, it's like what we imagine knowledge to be. And then she describes knowledge in a way that no one has ever thought of knowledge before. And then suddenly she wants to correct herself. That since our knowledge is historical, if she's using flowing, she also has to use flown. And um, 
I mean, my version of that, I haven't seen the drafts for this, but, but, my, but, my, but I imagine that it would have begun with some scraps of, of the detail of the early part and then slowly have built. But um, I, I think you're talking about a number of years here, Ruth. What would you think? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about detail. Yes, years. You, you have that thought and you think there and then it comes in. But um, I was thinking about detail and what she says about a primitive painter and her paintings are full of this detail. Very, very, you know, careful, careful, interesting there. And I was thinking also that knowledge is scientia, is science. That's what, that's what science means, knowledge. And so no wonder she liked Darwin and the precise observation. And it's wonderful that this extraordinary mode, one of the most, some of the most famous, beautiful lines of the 20th century, came out of this, these little sequins, these little details about the man that knew her grandfather. Yeah. Anybody else? I think you're right. The, um, the, the, the parallels between Bishop and Larkin, um, they both, in their longer poems, have this almost forensic detail, uh, don't they? Um, yeah. Larkin's uh, um, poems, um, you know, de- describing beach holidays or describing funerals or women buying clothes in, in the store, exactly the same eye, eye for detail. Um, I want to like I want to like Bishop more, more than I've been able to actually um, because um, with Larkin uh, with his long descriptions you also get an attitude which you might agree with or not agree with but you know what he feels about certain things with Bishop I struggle with that poem uh, uh, Fish Houses and I re- I've read your book and I've read what you say about it but that business at the end about suddenly this is about knowledge uh, um, I, I take your parallel with the, the um, last uh, James Joy story in in um, about the silence is echoing over the whole, you know the, the whole of the sleeping country that, that, that works in for me that I can understand that but this business about no, knowledge and what it would taste like to me that's that's such a complete non sequitur I don't mind being heretical but I just don't get it I mean yeah, but uh, come I, on uh, no it, no well, well well um I mean it is a huge risk the the poem but I just wonder where with Larkin um, that if you come to, the, to, to that last phrase in the Whitsun Weddings, somewhere becoming rain. Yeah. You go, well, he's moved out of the poem into some other realm with that, where, where he actually seems... I mean, I take somewhere becoming rain as a moment of pure optimism, of, of, of something being, being weathered, being sort of watered and nourished. And, yeah. But I get the same in High Windows. I mean, in other words, when you come to the end of High Windows, after all that stuff at the beginning I'm not even going to quote here, you know, and... Um, it's so, it's, it's so basic at the beginning. And then by the end, when he's evoked the, uh, the, the image of High Windows, there's no reason why he should evoke such an image. But he's insisting that the poem must... If, if, if the poem... In other words, he, he has tied the poem down so much in grim reality, in, in, in the sharp names for things, that in order to get a way out of the poem, he has to open the poem up in, in, in a, in, in, to a sort of new melody. And he does that at the end of High Windows bringing in an image that has nothing to do with what's been going on earlier. And, 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 and it is up to the reader to buy this or not. In other words, you say, well, what? Where, where does High Windows come from? Is this not a poet trying to end a poem? And he does it with the trees, begin afresh, when you really want Larkin to say something really rude about trees. It's about time someone cut that tree down. Or, or you know, I saw trees rotting recently in the park. Or, begin afresh, afresh, 
fresh. So the, I mean, the grumpy Larkin that we all think we know uh, sometimes emerges as a much different figure, uh, as someone who, who really, really wants to um, celebrate and totalise. Let's um, have a drink. And there are lots of books to sign and buy first and then get signed. And you can talk to Colm. And Colm, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>